Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Today, another installment of the Faith, Work, and Economics series. We're so honored today to welcome our special guest, Dr. Wayne Grudem. We've enjoyed having him give lectures to us and lead us in workshops over the last couple of days here in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Grudem is professor at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona, served for two decades at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, he and his wife, Margaret, are the parents of three sons and are grandparents of three as well. Dr. Grudem has uh, published more than 20 books on many topics, including systematic theology. And we think of his best-selling and marvelous one-volume systematic theology that has made such an impact worldwide. But uh, Dr. Grudem has given attention in these last few years to work, to business, uh, to economics, uh, to poverty, and that fits in so well with the focus that we've had in our program here at Beeson. And so, Dr. Grudem, I want to start by uh, asking you a question about work. So much of your, your own uh, publishing makes it very clear that you're a very strong supporter of evangelism and of Christian witness in all of its forms. But now you're, you seem to be saying a lot of positive things about, about human work, work in factories, work in law firms, uh, work as a scientist, work as a CEO, a farmer. Is this a spiritual matter? Is this something that Christians should care about, something that, that your church needs to teach about and think about? Well, it really is, Mark, because the Bible comes to speak to us about all of life. First of all, people need to be able to trust, learn how to trust in Jesus as their Savior for forgiveness of sins and for uh, gaining eternal life. But after that, what should we do? And Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, uh, we are to uh, do good works. We should pursue good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's um, he's called us to do good works, and that means seeking to be faithful to God in marriage, in parenting, in in with the workplace, in the school, in uh, medical care, in um, government, and uh, certainly in ordinary workplaces where Paul says that servants are to do their work as unto the Lord, serving the Lord and not uh, not serving man. And so Christians need to know, how is it that I can work as serving the Lord as an auto mechanic or baggage handler at an airline or uh, as a shop owner or a farmer uh, or a lawyer or a doctor, uh, an engineer, in whatever, whatever area of work? Now, one of the great emphases that was brought in with Martin Luther at the Reformation starting in 1517 was to pursue all of these careers that God gives us as a calling from God and do our work as unto the Lord. And so, um, yes, that's something we should do and that I think pastors should teach their congregations about how to do their work as pleasing the Lord. One of the consequences of the, of the fall in the earliest chapters of Genesis seems to be the cursing of human work. And uh, I think even in my own lifetime, I've experienced in the workplace a lot of things that seem to be not of the Lord. 
many people really hate their jobs and uh, view the church as a refuge from from that arena. Uh, can work still uh, glorify God in spite of of the the this curse that we've brought upon ourselves in our rebellion against God? Well, we see that work doesn't have to be an evil or a curse because God gave Adam and Eve work to do before there was any sin in the world. He put them in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it, to take care of it, and that meant to develop products and resources from the earth. Of course, raising uh, fruit and vegetable products to begin with, but then probably storage facilities for them and places to live in, uh, simpler and then more complex shelter and um, transportation like carts and buggies and eventually um, domesticated animals and modern autom automobiles and housing and buildings and air conditioning and airplanes and all of that. Um, I think all that has to do with subduing the earth. So that was work that God gave Adam and Eve to do, and it's in itself good, and we shouldn't view it as evil. Now, because of sin, God said in Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And I think when the Bible says thorns and thistles, it's doing what the Bible often does. It takes two th samples of something to speak of a general class of things. And all that means uh, is that uh, all of the um, parts of the earth that are painful and harmful and destructive to us, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, droughts, earthquakes, that those things I think God introduced into the natural order as part of the punishment of sin. Um, so that work becomes more difficult. God said to Adam, in the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. But um, we seek to overcome that and seek to overcome the, the effects of the fall to make to have air-conditioned tractors uh, for farmers to uh, drive, for instance, and to have um, labor-saving devices that take away, take away a lot of the pain of labor. But uh, still, we get joy in productive work, in creative work, and we should have, I think, a vision of reclaiming that sense of uh, work is doing good for other people, making products that are useful for other people, and doing so out of obedience to God. Some people really do enjoy uh, their work, or at least they seem to. They put so much energy into it. Uh, in the 1970s, early 70s, Wayne Oates coined the term workaholic. Uh, and so is there also a danger on that side of the equation where human beings uh, tr uh, give work a place in their life that... Um, uh, is not pleasing to the Lord. Well, before I respond to that, Mark, I'd better say I, I thought of one example of someone who was a Christian who really delighted in his work, and it was when it was in the middle of my schooling one summer. I worked in a paper mill in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and um, that paper mill made Kleenex tissue or facial tissues and paper towels and toilet paper. And this one man I thought probably was a Christian before I even talked to him or met him, and his job was to take 10 rolls of toilet paper, shove them in a plastic sack, and put a twist tie on it and put it on the conveyor belt or in a box. But he seemed to have a joy about him in doing that menial work, repetitive work, that was different from everybody else in the factory. And when I got to know him, he was, in fact, a born-again Christian, doing his work as unto the Lord. I think of another example of a janitor at Bethel College in St. Paul, where I first taught, where everybody knew Keith had joy in his work and cleaning the gum off the carpets that students had foolishly and carelessly dropped on the carpet. But he went about it with such cheer and joy that he was doing his work as unto the Lord. So there are examples of even... Um, 
that kind of work being uh, something they're doing and serving God and having joy in it. Now, can people become workaholics? Yes. Uh, the remarkable economic transformation of the nation of Japan uh, in the uh, second half of the 20th century came about not through Christianity, but f- through a form of Buddhism that really made work into a kind of religion. And they pursued work with a zeal and had economic prosperity develop, but they had no conception of a Christian Sabbath or of rest. And so there was a high rate of workaholism in Japan and a high rate of divorces and suicides where people had work, 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 until they just finally gave up. And so there is uh, wisdom needed from the Lord to know how much to work and how much to rest, because God calls us not only to work as unto the Lord and delight in our work, but also to take rest, and um, he furnishes us with all things richly for our enjoyment. And I think he wants, it's First Timothy 6, and I think he does want us to enjoy the fruits of our labors as well and take times of rest and times of worship and time with family, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Most of us uh, on planet Earth who work, uh, work either primarily or significantly in order to earn money. Yes. And money comes up for uh, negative uh, scrutiny and critique in Scripture <laughs> over and over yeah. again. Jesus had some nasty things to say about it. How can we work to earn money? And glorify the Lord, is that even possible? Well, the Lord says in the Old Testament, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to him. And I think, honestly, Mark, I think God put um, materials in the earth, such as gold and silver, that would be precious metals that he knew we could use as a medium of exchange. And then, of course, people had paper uh, money that was standing for the precious metals. And then, ultimately, we have electronic forms of money with credit cards, but they're just more abstract forms of a medium of exchange. And and money, um, the, when people complain about money, I would just like them to imagine what it would be like to go back to bartering eggs and strawberries and um, tomatoes and trying to get some uh, other consumer goods at the local store by bartering. If you didn't have money, you'd have to raise some of your own farm products and try to trade, and uh, it would go a little ways, but not very far. It'd be a hopelessly... Uh, destructive and um, burdensome system where people couldn't carry on the uh, kinds of uh, interaction and providing of goods for one another and supplying of goods for one another that we have today. Money makes all that possible. It's a medium of exchange. So, So I think that money is a gift from God. It's a wonderful blessing. It enables human transactions in the economic sphere. But because it is so powerful, uh, it provides many temptations to sin. And so Paul says the root of money, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it's not money itself. Mm-hmm. Money itself is something, something good. And it's something, you know, it, it's another thing that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. It doesn't happen in the, they don't say, animals don't negotiate over buckets of oats or uh, uh, acres of grass or something for, for <laughs> transactions for money. It's a human activity, and I think it's partly uh, reflective of the wisdom that God has implanted within the human race. When I work and and seek money, it often draws me into competition with others. Uh, And doesn't this stir up a a desire in me (laughs) to see my brother or sister fail? How can that fit with following uh, Jesus Christ in this world? Well, I think you can have a healthy competition where it's attempting to do the best job you can do. And sometimes you see other people doing and trying to do a similar thing. 
you're not trying to want you are not wanting them to fail, but you're wanting to do better than them if you can because you're trying to make a better product or a better uh, a better consumer good. And you see this with the development of cell phones, where competition in the cell phone industry led to smaller and better and more efficient cell phones. I don't think the motivation was to try to destroy other companies, but the motivation was to try to see if we could do better ourselves. And in that way, competition is how uh, economic development take, takes place. Now, Mark, the fact of the matter is there is there are so many consumer products needed in the world and so many uh, needs that people have that uh, there's always there's always going to be a place for uh, everybody to find some kind of productive job and not to be destroyed or driven out of business completely. It's just that people who don't make the best products should close their shop. A restaurant that makes bad food should go out of business, and uh, the restaurant owner should go into some other kind of work, but there will always be some other kind of work that he or she can do. Well, I'm sorry that I've eaten at some of those restaurants. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm making quite the contribution we would hope. I, you know, I can think about... Um, uh, a breadwinner for his family, uh, her family, working and providing for the family and and having resources to help others who might uh, be in need and think fondly about it. But the title of one of your books is Business for the Glory of God. And that seems to take us into a different realm with people who who seem to be truly driven by, by the profit motive uh, in a way that it's difficult, I think, for many to think of in ways that are spiritually edifying. But you've entitled a book, Business, for the Glory of God. Explain yourself. I think people too often focus on the distortions that happen in the business world where somebody is cheating or stealing or promoting defective products and covering up the defects or something. Those are distortions. But those those people don't succeed in the long run, and uh, where there is a free market and people are able to decide that they won't buy inferior products, those people eventually go out of business and, or even run afoul of the law for misleading the consumer on what they produce. But in itself, business is a good thing because in producing, uh, say, a baker that makes a loaf of bread, he's making a loaf of bread because he knows that people want that bread. He's doing something that helps other people in a way. He's uh, fulfilling Jesus' command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but he's doing it through making bread that people will enjoy and eat and be nourished by. But when I go into the shop and buy that bread, I am also doing good for the baker because he wants my $4, my $5, whatever I pay for that loaf of bread, more than he wants the bread that's going to go stale by the time the uh, day ends. And so when I give him the money, the $5, and he gives me the loaf of bread, I'm happier. I'm better off because I got the bread I wanted more than the money. He's happy. He's better off because he got the dollars that he wanted more than the bread. We've done good for each other in buying and selling. And I, I would like to transform the way people think of business transactions so that they realize that when they're doing voluntary buying and selling, they are really doing good for one another. And that's, that's it's kind of a, one small way of you should love your neighbor as yourself. And I think, Mark, you know, going to work is an, going to work for someone else is another example of this. So, uh, oh, I think of um, one of my sons when he was in high school. His first job was working at a dry cleaner in the in the town where we lived in Illinois. And um, the dry cleaner was doing good for other people. And Elliot, when he worked at that dry cleaner, was doing good for other people by providing them good service and giving their caring for their clothes and providing help in getting their clothes clean. But uh, the customer was doing good for the dry cleaner and for my son because he was paying them. 
So they're doing good for each other. And uh, the dry cleaner uh, was doing good for Elliot by giving him a job. Elliot was doing good for the dry cleaner by working for him. So working for someone else is also another way of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's mutually beneficial. One of the messages I hear from your writings in this area is a very world-affirming message, of affirmation of the physical world. Yep. Uh, the material uh, world. And I'm used to hearing that kind of message from those who hold to, hold to a post-millennial uh, eschatological vision, but both of us are a historic uh, premillennialist. Right. And we usually seize on uh, other passages. Our citizenship is not in this world. Do not lay up treasure uh, in this world. Do not love uh, the world. And so how is it that you're, you're saying all of these world-affirming things, and yet you believe, don't you, that we're headed to a very, a very ugly and horrible end before we enter into that, that new heaven and earth where our citizenship lies? Well, in terms of the material creation, I start with Genesis 131, where God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That includes the material creation, our physical bodies, as he created Adam and Eve, and the food in the garden and the animals that he made, it was very good. So God is not world-denying, he's world-affirming in Genesis 1.31. Now there's a result of sin, there's a curse on the ground, and there's a distortion of nature that comes that makes it harder for us to work. But subduing the earth and using its products for our benefit and enjoyment is still very good. In 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says that God, even for the rich in this world, Paul says, they, they are... Uh, uh, to uh, not set their hopes on riches, on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. He wants them to be generous and uh, store up for themselves with their generosity, store up the, for themselves treasures for the life that is life indeed. But uh, he does say that God furnishes us with all things richly to enjoy. You and I went to a restaurant last night and, a Mex and had some Mexican food, Mark. Um, I was thankful to God for that. The food tasted good, but I think that's a blessing that we shouldn't just deny and think it's a temptation. It's something that God has given us for our good, and he wants us to enjoy it with thanksgiving. Well, as we both know, many people in this world never have opportunity to enjoy such such a meal as we did yes. uh, uh, last evening. And... Um, You've said some very positive things about free markets and what you call economic freedom, uh, but we have a presidential candidate right now who is telling us that uh, through the uh, operation of these free markets, uh, there's been a great transfer of wealth uh, from impoverished nations to richer nations, and even with our nation, from those who are impoverished to those to those who who have wealth already, and so. Uh, how how can you uh, be so positive about such things, free markets and economic freedom? Well, Mark, um, perhaps you're referring to the book that I wrote called The Poverty of Nations, A Sustainable Solution. And uh, this book, published by Crossway Books, was co-authored by an economics professor and a friend of mine, Barry Asmus, A-S-M-U-S. And we published this book, Poverty of Nations, to provide answers for nations who are trying to grow from poverty into prosperity, and we've, we've found actually 79 factors that increase prosperity within nations, and we think they are consistent with biblical principles, as we explain in the book. Now, it's just not true that rich nations have grown rich uh, as a result of impoverishing poor nations, the poor nations of the world that have had economic con contact and, and interaction with 
Rich nations have by and large become more prosperous as a result, not impoverished as a result. So we look at that in the book and we look at the effect of international trade and commerce and things. But in fact, where the transactions are voluntary and not uh, a result of shady deals by corrupt governments in poor countries, which of course sometimes happens, and then we, often, and then we should, of course, justly condemn that. But where the transactions are voluntary and people enter into voluntary work and production agreements with uh, companies from other nations, those are generally positive things, and the people in those countries view them as positive, and they're a help, and they're enriching to the people in the poor countries in an economic sense as well. So poor countries don't need to be cut off from economic interaction with wealthy countries. They need to increase that inter in economic interaction because it brings economic benefit to both, uh, both countries as a result. Well, as far as I know, only Luther has you beat with your 79 uh, points. Uh, he had 95 <laughs> theses, but that's still uh, very, very impressive. Well, when we look at a map and, and look at per capita income and life expectancy, it's so clear that that certain nations have really got it so much better. Don't we need to help them by sharing with them the great resources that we have, monetary resources, uh, to help them uh, lift them out of poverty through uh, aid to these nations. What our book, The Poverty of Nations, demonstrates, Mark, is that no country in history has ever come out of poverty by means of foreign aid. Uh, nations come out of poverty toward prosperity in only one way and one way alone, and that is by producing their own prosperity, by becoming becoming more productive. Their factories produce more, their farms produce more, uh, and this has happened throughout history, and we trace factors that can transform cultures and economies and governments so that countries begin to produce more on their own. We can't tell them how to do it. We can't force them how to do it, but they, we can't force them to do these things. We can tell them in, in general broad purposes and broad scope how this path can be achieved, but the mechanism of how to achieve it within each poor country, as Barry Asmus and I have spoken in many poor countries, a number of them in South America, in Africa, in Asia, and Eastern Europe. We say only people, heroic leaders within those countries can follow these steps and these paths toward greater economic production in terms of the individual decisions that have to be made within those countries. But we do believe that um, when economies are transformed so that there's a free market economy, not a government-controlled economy, when the government is transformed so the government serves for the benefit of the people, not the benefit of the rulers, and where the culture and beliefs are transformed so that people follow biblical patterns of belief and cultural habits, that uh, those things lead to greater economic prosperity. You've spoken positively about the not only the rise and spread of free markets and economic freedom. You've spoken positively about the, for example, the industrial industrial revolution uh, that really kicked off in in Britain, and uh, you know some of the factories that grew up in that time inspired some of the greatest literature slamming those factories in the works of Charles Dickens. Isn't uh, yeah? But you see, Mark, what happened was. People within those societies saw the abuses and they saw the evils and they wrote about them and the evils were corrected. Those things do not exist in factories in Great Britain anymore. Don't these new technologies that we're developing, uh, like the combustion engine, for example, aren't we destroying our planet 
through uh, the products of free markets and economic freedom? No. We're not? <laughs> no. <laughs> you mean if we're, if we're more advanced in free markets and economic freedom, we end up being cleaner? Yes, absolutely. That's and what that's, you're saying? Yes, and we show in the book, either that or the book that I wrote called Politics According to the Bible, we talk about the, econ- the environment in, in both places. Economic development leads to overcoming pollution. In fact, um, every nation of the world that grows economically has an upward trend in uh, smog and uh, uh, sulfur dioxide, sulfur uh, smog and congestion in cities. We see that in the first few thousand per dollars of per capita income as a country grows, and then one after another, when they get to about uh, eight or ten thousand dollars per capita income, countries begin to say. We can't breathe this awful air anymore. Enough. We need pollution controls to come in, and all of a sudden they start cleaning up the air. The air in London now is like the air in London before the Industrial Revolution. It's like the air in London in the 1600s. It's much more clean. And Margaret and I, having gone to England a number of times over the last several years, we remember in 1970 that it was badly polluted when we first went there. Now it's clean. You can walk in the streets of London and breathe because there are pollution controls on the cars. It's free market economies that control pollution. It's socialist economies that destroy the environment and lead to disasters such as the Chernobyl uh, nuclear meltdown and things like that. You've used the word prosperity positively several times already in this interview. It's better than poverty. Are you an advocate for the prosperity gospel? Uh. And if you're not, <laughs> aren't you concerned that people who, who hear this and read this kind of thing will think that you are an advocate for the prosperity gospel? Well, anybody can take quotations out of context, I suppose, Mark. But we say very clearly we do not agree with the prosperity gospel, which says if you have enough faith, God will make you wealthy and he'll make you healthy. And that is not true. Jesus was poor. Paul was poor. James said, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him? So uh, the Bible doesn't promise that Christians will always be wealthy. Many times they will not be. But as a matter of fact, when we have a country that has uh, a rule of law where people can't disobey the law and have their friends, the judges, let them get away with it, where there's rule of law and where there's a stable currency and low taxation, when people work hard, they are paid for the uh, fruit of their labor, and they tend to do better as a result. Now, in countries with corrupt governments, where the court system doesn't give people justice, especially poor people, then, of course, Christians often can be honest and hardworking and not prosper. But those are distortions of how government and economies are supposed to function. That's not the way they're supposed to function naturally. Uh, and also, uh, of course, people are born with and grow up with different skills and motivations. Some people are good uh, basketball players or good football players or good engineers or scientists. They're going to earn more for their work than others who aren't gifted in those ways. doesn't mean that they're going to be happier because people will be happy in following the path that God has given them and the role that God has called them to. But it does mean that some people, if they're paid according to the fruit of their labor, are going to earn more than others. I don't think that's a problem. You've been speaking all over this country and really all over the world uh, about these matters, work, um, poverty, business. Uh, My final question is, what kind of response are you receiving as you begin to explore these matters uh, with believers around the world and in our own nation? Basically, the response has been, Mark, Wow, why didn't someone tell me this before? Uh, Just uh, people who talked to me after the lecture I gave here at Beeson this morning basically were saying, this is all new information. 
uh, how economies grow, how they prosper, how countries have become wealthy and others have stayed poor, why, what are the reasons for it. It makes sense, it's consistent with biblical teachings, but it is something that people basically aren't taught anymore or didn't, or aren't taught in the culture or the general media information that's given out today. But it makes sense and it's consistent with biblical standards that if uh, these biblical principles are followed, then nations overcome poverty and grow toward greater prosperity. So yes, of course, the two greatest commandments are to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to put those first, and we do, and we say that clearly in this book, The Poverty of Nations. But if people are talking about economic development and overcoming poverty, then here are the steps to follow. And I think we should agree that uh, education is better than ignorance, that health is better than sickness, that in that sense, prosperity is better than poverty, that care for the environment is better than abuse of the environment. Uh, and uh, ability to prosper and re keep the fruit of one's labor and benefit from one's work is better than having that taken away and stolen from us by excessive government force. So these things that are accompaniments of economic development are basically good, and they're wonderful things that I think are implications of the teaching of the Bible and the whole counsel of God as it applies to all of life, and in this case, to economic life. Well, Dr. Grudem, I think you're pioneering uh, areas of biblical teaching with application to our world today uh, that have been greatly neglected. And for that, I'm grateful to you, and I know many others are as well. Thank you so much for being our guest on the Beeson podcast today. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for inviting me here to Beeson. It's been a joy to be here. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.